0: Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast, celebrating our 14th year, and we've done absolutely nothing to improve the program all this time. Produced with a vengeance by Magic Matt Allen, I'm the legendary Burl Bearer. Our fact checker co-host, what's his name? Mike Boyer. <laughs> because of his background, accomplishments, and aggravations, I consider a close personal friend, Seth Ferranti. Hi, Seth. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? We've never met, but because of what you've been through and your attitudes and how you perceived yourself, I consider you a close personal friend.
1: You know, I, I formed so many different relationships, you know, while I was in, just through email and, and, and phone and stuff like that. You know, that, especially with the true crime stuff, I mean, it's not like there's a lot of us, you know. So, I mean, we've all been moving in these same circles for so long, you know. You know, so like a lot of the people that I've, I've been involved with, you know, yourself included, like, you know, I, I've been associated with for 10, 15, 20 years.
0: We're going to talk a bit about psychedelia. Did you go to the bicycle uh, celebration in uh, the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, so we, we actually, um, we, we premiered the first 20 minutes of the first episode of my um, Psychedelic Revolution series there, you know, on Bicycle Day at the, at the Midway in San Francisco on, on 419.
0: That was in celebration of the most famous bicycle ride in history, Dr. Albert Hoffman. Yeah, yeah first LSD trip on wheels.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, man. So that, that's what, um, you know, that series it, it kind of starts out, you know, it starts out with Albert Hoffman and, and the first the first episode, which is Volume 1, I'm, I'm uh, titling The Genesis, kind of goes from, you know, that event in 1943 to basically, you know, when LSB was made illegal in 1966, and you know, that that was kind of like the the end of the 60s and the, the advent of the, the War on Drugs, you know, so we, we yeah. that's going to be a... Spelt yeah, also
0: known of, as the uh, War on Youth and the War on Minorities.
1: Yeah, no, definitely, because... <laughs> I mean, that's a proven fact. I mean, they said they said uh, that guy came out a couple of years ago who was under Nixon, and, and he said they were targeting the blacks
0: and the hippies. Yep, blacks and hippies. Got to watch out for them. Goes right along with the uh, international Zionist conspiracy that I keep hearing about, and I haven't, I haven't got my check yet. And I'm very upset about yeah, that. Yeah, but if you were a black hippie... You if if was black hippie, I was a black hippie, I would have got my mm-hmm. check. Uh, the first time I had LSD, it was perfectly legal. You know what I hear people say? You wow, man! You you spoke pot when it was totally illegal. I took LSD when it was legal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and same thing with uh, MDMA. The ecstasy was given me by my doctor as part of my therapeutic experiences. And I'll tell you, it says, yeah, because
1: MDMA was legal until the, the, like the mid '80s, I think.
0: That's right. Well, actually, later than that, uh, 90... Uh, 91, it's 1991. 89, uh, maybe, because I went to a, a new doctor and I got some weird, weird conditions because I got whacked in the head accidentally uh, when I was a newborn child, and my brain rewired itself completely. <laughs> so, neurologists love to study my brain because it processes information totally different than it's supposed to, in quotes. And uh, it had some positive uh, effects and some pleasant side effects. It said, uh, I think that this uh, will be an absolutely wonderful experience for you here. And gave me the uh, the ecstasy MDMA, and it came with uh, an instruction manual from the ph- pharmacy company. You know, don't throw uh, snacks down your throat because your throat might get numb. You know, trick <laughs> play. Yeah. You know? but it was like really kind of a fun and official uh, handbook that came with with the capsule and uh, it was absolutely delightful. I had a great sales day. <laughs> Everyone benefited from it. My empathy was really up there with my clients. So, <laughs> it was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, and you know it's funny? Um, You know, I, I've never done MDMA in my life.
0: You're missing a real treat, but it's crap on the street.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. Um... You know, I mean, I've done a ton of LSD. You know, I'm a big mushroom guy. Uh I've even experimented with peyote. But, uh, yeah, never in MDMA, never. You know, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, it's like so late in the game, man. I'm like in my 50s, so I'm like, you know,
0: should I try it or should I just say fuck it? Yeah. I'm I'm at that stage, like... I I was at that stage once, and I'm 74 now, so (laughs) give me me a hint. But actually, it was my favorite, uh, you know, because LSD is a uh, hallucinogenic psychedelic, and MDMA is a uh, non-hallucinogenic, empathetic uh, psychedelic. Just, you just think everyone's so cute. <laughs> and uh, the love and trust aspects of the brain are amplified. And they gave it... it originally, it was developing you know, as a diuretic uh, for people in the Army. And they gave it to them and... Well, I don't got to shoot anybody. <laughs> it just made yeah. them, No, no, no. We're not shoot people? You got to be crazy, man. We're not doing that. Although it's also... Uh, As treatment for PTSD, I talked to people who were in the PTSD treatment uh, experiments with MDMA. And the guy said, it totally eradicated all symptoms for six months. I said, what did you do after the six months? He says, I went back and begged him to give me uh, another dose. And he said, no, that was the test. It's illegal to give you more. So that was the end of that. So uh, what was the event like? Was it beside it was good for you, obviously? You got to uh, premiere your first episode with some really uh, fascinating people there.
1: Yeah, no, so we, you know, on the panel, so we had a panel and I, I had a lot of the people that are in the film in the panel. You know, I had a Hamilton Morris, you know, from uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, you know, from Vice. He was there, um... Carolyn Mountain Girl Garcia, who was a married prankster and also was um, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, his, his longtime wife. She was there. They're both in the film. Roni Stanley was on the panel. And um, Roni Stanley was Bear Owsley's, you know, partner. Right. Was actually one of the people. You know, she had his kid, but, she, you know, also, you know, she was the one, like, synthesizing LSD. She was, like, his lab assistant. So she was actually in the lab, you know, synthesizing LSD with him, you know, back, back in the 60s. And um, then we had, two. we had Mark McLeod, who is the, uh, you know, he's the curator of the, the Blotter Barn, which is, um, you know, the largest blotter collection of blotter acid, you know, in the world. Oh, yeah. 33, yeah. 33, yeah, uh, 33,000 pages of um, blotter acid.
0: If you, can, if you browse through those pages, do you get a contact high from touching the pages, or do they have them sealed in plastic?
1: No, you know, um, the, the thing with the LSD, so, you know, I mean, they're all hanging up in this room, and it gets a lot of sunlight, so, you they know, killed after it. after a yeah. little bit of time, yeah, the sunlight kills it. So, you know, he says, like, some of the pages at some of the time, they were, like, real pages, you know, but over the years, you know, it, it's funny, too, because uh, Mark McCloud, You know, he he actually got indicted by the feds. So the feds actually came into his house. He lives right in the Mission District. He has, like, one of those big old Victorians in the Mission District. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually came in his house at two different times. One time in the beginning of the 2000s and and one time more recently, like, around 2012. And and they were trying to connect him to, like, different LSD conspiracies, conspiracies with the feds. And so the first time they went in, I think, like, 2003 or something, and they, they seized, like, all the all the bladder acid off his walls, and they, they put it in, like, you know, they put, like, evidence stickers on all the frames. Right. So then he beat that case. You know, he beat that case. So he took all the evidence stickers off, all the DEA evidence stickers. Then they came back in 2012, and they did the same thing, you know, and, and he, like, went to trial again, and he got found not guilty. But this time, you know, and still to this present day, he decided to leave the evidence stickers on. So when you go in to the bottom floor of his house, which is his museum, the blotter barn, all the framed blotter sheets have the DEA stickers on them, Huh? evidence stickers.
0: Hey, did you meet uh, Leonard Picard? Yeah, you no, know, I know Leonard.
1: You know, I, I actually filmed Leonard for the film. I interviewed him, and I, I got a long-standing uh, relationship with Leonard. You know, we used to write back and forth while we were in, so, you know, I've been in communication with Leonard for probably, like, 15, 20 years. Wow, that's and, a, um, his story is yeah.
0: fascinating. Uh, Dennis McDougall wrote uh, a book about uh, Operation White Rabbit, about. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. Definitely an awesome book. But Leonard, actually, he could he couldn't go. He couldn't make it. He was supposed to be on the panel, but something came up, and, and he couldn't make it for the uh, for the Bicycle Day celebration. So he was the one person we missed. But we we still had we had Timothy Tyler. who You know, he had a life sentence for LSD, and he got a pardon. From Obama, we had Sunshine Keezy, who is um, Mountain Girl and Kim Keezy's daughter. You know Kim Keezy yeah, right. from the you know yeah Married Pranksters and wrote One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. So, I mean we had, I mean it, it was just an awesome turnout, man. It, it was a sold out event. You know, um, I you know it was very well received. You know, everybody told me you know they can't wait until the whole series comes out. You know, they're ready you know, that to watch it, and everybody wanted to know, like, where it's going to be. And um, for me, it was just powerful because, you know, I'm, I'm always, like, in, in history, it's like, you know, the men always get all the credit in, in history, and, and they're always, like, kind of, especially criminal activities, you know, or outlaw activities. The men are kind of, like, at the forefront, you know, because you right. the men that end up taking the rap and going to jail, you know, and, and rightly so. But, you know, these, these women... You know, like Loni Stanley, Karen Garcia, you know, Sunshine Keezy. I mean, th- these are like the high priestesses of, of this culture. You know, this culture that we're a part of, this culture that they created and that I kind of came to in the 80s, you know, when I started following the Grateful Dead. I mean, these women to me are icons, and it's really important for me in this film to let them kind of get their due and, and right. tell their stories. You know, because people know these stories from a men's perspective. But, I mean, like, you've got Rooney Stanley. I mean, she's with, like, one of the most, you know, her man was one of the most famous, you know, infamous, notorious chemists ever. You know, also the guy who created the Wall of sound for the Grateful Dead. And then you look at Carolyn Garcia, Mountain Girl. I mean, her, her first, her first uh, you know, boyfriend that she had a kid with, Sunshine Keesey, like Ken T V. You know the leader of the Mary Pranksters and, and, and the famous author, and then you know her her second, you know husband is uh, you know Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. So it's like, you know, to me it's, it's just real interesting, you know, to meet these women and, and get to know them and you know interview them and, and let them kind of tell their stories, you know, because I think I think they've really been underrepresented, and, and to me these women are just as big as icons as the men.
0: Oh yeah. Always oh, they say they're, they're the emotional connection barometer of the story, which is why when uh, when Frank Gerardo and I wrote "Betrayal in Blue" about the cocaine dealing cops in the NYPD of uh, Michael Dowd and Ken Urell, we started the book not with them, but with Ken's wife. You know because they, she was there the whole you know the whole time though knew everything that was going on, you know, and uh, how it affected her when the cops came crashing in, uh, to uh, you know, search the house. The other cops came in to search the house and she doesn't know what the hell's going on, you know. Uh, She passed away, unfortunately, about a year ago, but uh, suddenly, too bad. But she was a fantastic woman and uh, I think we made the right call. Of course, as you know, uh, true crime as a genre is uh, female-dominated in terms of purchases. They're the ones buying most of the books, listening to most of the podcasts. And... uh, we started this show uh, to see if we could get men into it, and uh, I'm proud to say that our latest demographic study shows is 50-50, uh, half men, half women. Uh, the men are effeminate, but that's okay. <laughs> well, but uh, you know, we, and we have people listed all the way to Pakistan, so it's a it's a fascinating genre. Also, there's a great podcast that uh, I listen to about ethics uh, in true crime uh, true crime writing and, and true crime podcasts and the FBI has a concern about this too that if you've got an ongoing case and it's controversial and you get a bunch of talking heads on radio or TV and you go spouting off their opinions it can totally screw up a case You can, if the killer is listening they'll destroy evidence they may freak out they don't know the difference between a real expert and just some you know, assholes. You know, shoot his mouth off. And uh, so that's one reason on, on this show uh, we don't do trial by uh, trial by talk show or indictment by soundbite. You know, we <laughs> we try to keep away from that entirely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm perfectly. Uh, man, I, uh, your mic's well, no, uh, uh, oh, my, my mic, mic yeah, you Hey, you're trying my microphone. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm pretty sure that no one would uh, dispute that this show is criminal. Yes, we've been accused of that, because we often have criminals on the show, or or reformed criminals, such as our mutual friend uh, Pavle Stanimirovich, a.k.a. Punch. Yeah, I love
1: Punch. I love Punch.
0: Everybody loves Punch. He's a wonderful guy. We spent a lot of time on the phone uh, yesterday. Our book's getting ready to come out, Stealing Manhattan. And uh, you're not in that book. I'm sorry to say. If I, if I know you better, I would have yeah, yeah. put no, you in the book.
1: Totally he was totally different scene than me.
0: Yeah, but uh, great guy and uh, good artist too. This is a life takes some strange turns, you know. And when you were first in the slammer, when they, you know, were going to throw you away for what, what, twenty years for pot and LSD? Twenty-five.
1: Yeah, I got twenty-five.
0: That must have been depressing. Did you yeah, ever?
1: I you know. When when I first went in, it was, you know, because I was a fugitive for two years. So, um, in a weird kind of way, I mean, I got that 25-year sentence. And, yeah, I I was real angry, you know. um, I I was more angry than upset because I couldn't believe I got 25 years as a a 22-year-old man for a nonviolent, first-time nonviolent cannabis LSD offense. But, you know, in a weird way, after being a fugitive for two years and, and not being able to, like, you know, use my real name and be myself, and communicate with my parents or other people that I knew. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, previous
0: to my indictment, it
1: was, it was kind of nice, you know, to, to be myself again. You know, so that, that that's kind of weird. I had that little twist, and yeah. um,
0: at least I'm also, me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and also those first couple years in prison, like it was the first time you know that I was actually like drug free for since since I was like 13. So. You know, I I was using, you know, drugs, you know, mostly just marijuana and and psychedelics, you know, from the age of 13, you know, to the age of 22. So, you know, kind of numbing myself or or whatever, you know, getting in my mind, you know, blowing my mind out, however you want to say it. You know, I I don't like the word drug abuse because I believe I always had a a, a higher, uh, you know, higher intentions with, with my drug use. But, um, you know, it was the first time where I was kind of drug-free and I, and I could kind of recalibrate right. who I was and, and, and where my life was going.
0: Yeah, I did uh, 13 years uh, in abstinence to see see the difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I just always had a thing for the psychedelics. Yeah, uh, there was a, an interesting uh, paper written by some researcher on psychedelics, mostly LSD, and I had this, maybe you did too. I felt 100% comfortable on LSD as if I had been there a million times before, like going to a favorite vacation spot. It was so familiar to me. And this, that's what the entire research was on. That that's a very small percentage. And we don't know why that is. That some people go, I know this place. You know, <laughs> this this feels like home. I know
1: I think it has a lot to do. I mean, I'm am a big setting setting guy. So right. Me too. Yeah. So I'm really big. You know, on the mindset, your mindset going in, and then the setting. Like, where are you where are you doing it? You know, I like to be I like to be completely uh, unencumbered with any type of emotional baggage or any type of drama when I when I do decide. You know, to to, to drop a hit of acid. And at the same, and plus two, like um. You know, like I got a ton of friends. Like all my friends, they like to go to concerts and, and shit. Like I don't, I don't really like that. I, I like to be out. I like to be out in the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to be out. You know, camping. I like to be out hiking. I like to be out in the wilderness. You know, where I kind of get that oneness feel with nature. You know, that's really I. I. You know, and I even like. I like to take my shoes off. You know, I like to feel the earth. You know, under my feet. You know, I like to go on a river. You know, or a lake, and that's kind of. Uh, that's kind of my thing, you know, when I do that. I don't, I don't do as much, you know, acid, you know, nowadays. I might do some uh microdosing every now and then, you know. I just don't have the time um
0: Yeah, you gotta set aside like, about, you know, fifteen hours or something. You know, yeah, yeah, is don't, I don't it
1: like ten hours. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't got to eight to ten hours and 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 just, you know, to go back to what you're saying about about how you feel there, I get to that point but I kinda go, you know, I, I always get, like, when, when you have that up, when you're going up and you get that little
0: anxiousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I feel that little anxiousness. I always feel that. But once I get past that, that little, you
0: know, it's that, just that little anxious bridge. It's, it's, like, it's like the first top rocket top, on, a, on, a, on a, uh, uh, a spaceship, you know, when you, it goes up a different stage rockets. That first was, and then it breaks off. You know. Yeah. Same, same thing I with I the feel- uh, legal MDMA was the same way. Except there was no hallucinations.
1: Yeah, yeah I do the same thing because I, I microdose mushrooms a lot, too. And even even with the, the real light amounts of mushrooms, you know, like I, I might do like, like 0.5 grams extract, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I microdose that. And I, and I like to do it like in the morning, you know, like I get up and, and I'll do like twenty five grams of mushroom extract. And um, even, even that, I get like that little slight, you know, yeah. anxiousness, nervousness. You know, it's, it, but it's just like when you're going up, and then once you, once you get past that, you know, that's why I can see, I can see, like, well, some people have bad trips, or, or some people trip out because they, they get that anxiousness, or they get that nervousness, and and you know, and they start fixating on it. Yeah, they and get
0: paranoid so or Yeah, pa- paranoia. Don't let it destroy you.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can honestly say, I mean, I have never. Uh, I've never had a bad trip. You know, I've had some trips where I found myself in some awkward situations, you know, that maybe I didn't want to be in and, and maybe kind of were intensified right. by um, my LSD use. But I, I never really have. Like, I hear people talk about bad trips and I'm kind of like, you know, because I, really, I never really had a bad trip.
0: That's usually a set in setting related. You know, where, where you are, who you're with and what's going down. That's usually what it's all about. You know, unless he started dwelling on some strange stuff. I got to tell you a quick funny story. Do I mean, you ever I don't know if you knew Graham Parsons of oh. the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers? But uh, we became oh, yeah, name. yeah we became friends and uh, the Burrito Brothers were, were playing at the uh, this rock festival up in uh, Washington State. And uh, Graham wanted me to, to uh, bring him in and introduce him. Well, when it was time for him to go on, I was uh, on acid and I was underneath the stage because it was calm and quiet under there. No one bothered me, he didn't have to interact with anybody. So he comes down and he finds me down. He goes, Burl, Burl, come on. I want you to bring me, you know get up on stage and bring me on. So I go up on stage and I introduce him. you like, they the Flying Burrito Brothers. And I didn't leave the stage. I just walked over and leaned on his piano <laughs> for the entire set. <laughs> And He would look up at me while he'd sing singing, and he just laughed the fact that I, I didn't leave. I just stood there. The fact I saw someone had a, was posting pictures of the rock festival. I could see see me leaning and on his piano, looking at him, and him laughing at me. But uh, those are the, kind of the fun memories that people have. That and how did my wallpaper become paisley? I always will. <laughs> and who fixed it by morning? That was a strange one.
1: No, definitely. You know, I had this one. Uh, I had this one super memorable trip when I was. I was actually. I, w- I was on Dead Tour in um, 1990, so it was a summer. It was in. Um, it was in Three Rivers, you know, in Pittsburgh, and they played a show it It was. It was. It was either right after the keyboardist Brett Midland right after he died, or right before. You know, he OD'd on speedball, mm. so it, it was. I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly when if it was before or if it was after. But I was, I was like on this Jimi Hendrix thing, right? And you know, I, I'd watch some documentaries or I read something in a book where it said, like Jimi Hendrix would, before he'd go on stage, he would like pour a whole bunch of acid like on his bandana, you know, like liquid, liquid LSD. Mm-hmm. And he would pour it on his bandana and then he would put it on his head and he would go on stage and start playing. Hmm. So I was like, man, I was like, man, I want to try, try that." I want to try that. Yeah, so I, I, I had, you know, like a bottle, I had like a bottle, and it was, you know, it was like 100 hits, and and I was only going to maybe pour like a, a quarter or, or a half on it, but, you know, like my hand slipped or whatever, and I ended up pouring almost the whole bottle, you know, oh, by, like three-fourths of the bottle on this bandana, but I was like, whatever, you know, I was a young kid, you know, adventurous, so I was like, fuck it. So um, I put what well, was probably like 75 hits, you know, soaked into this bandana, you know, I, I tied it up, and I, I wrapped it around my head and I went into the show. And, um, you know, I was cool at first, and you know we were kinda of moving around, and then, uh, you know, back then, you know, when they used to have the concerts, like, the whole, the whole, you know, Three Rivers Stadium would be open, like, you could go wherever, you could go down on the field, you could, like, walk all right. the way up, you know, to the to the nosebleed seats.
0: Yeah, festival guess, seating, they called that, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was cool, like, when the shows were like that, it was so cool, you could just walk around the whole stadium, and, um so, you know, we went up to where everybody was smoking pot, you know, before the show. And um, it was like, a, you know, everybody smoked pot like up in the nosebleed seat. So I walked up there before I started tripping, And, you know, we were smoking weed, you know, hanging out with the homeboys, shit like that, you know. Uh, you know, I had like some Humboldt Bud, you know, from the MO Triangle. And like I was, you know, letting dudes see what I had. We used to call that Time Bud back in the day because there was so much like Mexican brick pot and shit. And so, you know, I'm kind of fucking showing out. You know, letting people know the type of butt I have and, and we started smoking. And then, um, you know, eventually the show started. I mean, I, I don't know how much time elapsed, how long we were up there because you know, I, I started tripping. And um, then the show starts, you know, so this band comes out so everybody like runs down. You know, and, and I was with one of my buddies too and my, my buddy actually, the rest of the bottle, like 25 hits, like he, like ingested that. He, oh, he, he didn't even put it on a bandana. He just took 25 hits. Yikes. Straight. So, yeah, so um, we're both, like, tripping. I mean, I don't know how many hits I took, but, you know, it's, like, 75. It's coming in through my skin, which I hear a lot of people say that that doesn't work, but I did it, and that shit fucking... That shit
0: worked, <laughs> yeah, that worked for people, you, huh?
1: i see people put liquid acid on their hands all the time, and they trip. So sometimes I've seen, like, you know, uh, people say that, or people want to argue that that doesn't work, but I don't think they know what they're talking about. But, um... So we're both tripping, and everybody runs down to the show, right? And so we're like, ah, let's go, right? But we're in the nosebleed seats, and it's like, you know, it's like these steps, like straight down. Right, a, a right. Cliff, right, so we kind of look, and we feel like we're looking over the edge, and we're, we both look at each other, and we're like, oh, we'll just wait a little bit, you know, <laughs> we're scared. We don't want to walk down the trip, you know, so... So we go back and, and, and we just hang out and we start smoking more pot and people are coming up and they're like, hey man, will you going to come down to the show? And, you know, it, it just time went on and time went on. And then it was like the show was over and we probably tried like maybe like 10 different times to walk down the steps, but we couldn't. <laughs> we, we, were just, we we're tripping balls. It was, it was like, it was too scary, you know? We yeah, you know, like, it's like so being away. at
0: Mount Everest.
1: Yeah, so we, we just stay up there and smoke weed and, and listen to the music up there. And then eventually, like, everybody rolled out, you know, the show was over, the stadium started to empty, and we're still sitting up there. I mean, I, I don't know how much time to last, but it had to be, like, five or six hours we're sitting up there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, from pre-show to show to after the show, and so then, like you know, a, a janitor. It was I vividly remember this. It's, it's like this, this black dude. Like he's he's like you know the janitor. He's like picking up stuff, and, and like he comes up there and he's like, "Yo, man!" He's like, "You guys got to go!" And we're like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, you are gonna you know." He goes, as "Soon as we clean this up, like we're locking you know we're locking the gates. You're gonna be locked in here if you don't leave like right now, you know, or very soon." And so finally, we're like, "Man." You know, I just look at my buddy and we're like, man, how are we going to get down, man? And, you know, we're, we're still tripping, but, you know, it's five or six hours, so we're not tripping as much as right. we might have already peaked. So, we're like, fuck it, we got to go. So we actually start crawling down the steps, like, backwards. <laughs> you know, like, like a crab or a spider. Right, and, and we and we go all the way down out of the nosebleed seats. So you and, you know, in the big stadiums, they got, like, the level. So, you know, we get to, like, the one level. And they were cool. We get to the level. It was just that first.
0: Yeah, first we section. Were, like,
1: all the way up at to the top. Yeah, so that, you know, and then we got to the level. We finally made our way out to the parking lot. But uh, it was just, uh, that was, like, a crazy, that's, like, that was funny, like, for me, that was like a bad trip, you know what I mean? Some people would make that into something real bad, but for me, it was just like, you know, we couldn't cope, we couldn't deal with the stairs, so we didn't deal with
0: the stairs. <laughs> Why deal with it? Yeah, <laughs> You know, all's well that ends well. You know, he got out of there eventually and probably enjoyed the concert, which could hear of it. So, you know, it, it all yeah. turned out okay. I
1: mean, the Grateful well, Dead play loud, so even up there, I mean, you can hear him.
0: Yeah, the other thing is, is having sex on LSD is always entertaining to find yourself suddenly copulating with a lizard.
1: <laughs> well, no, you know, I always thought, when I would take LSD, cause you know, you really look at yourself, man. Sorry. I don't know, I always thought like I looked ugly on LSD, and I would always think like other people look yeah, ugly.
0: Yeah, well they I kept turning mean, into like, like lizards and stuff, so <laughs> that was kind of entertaining until, uh, until you're making love to one. On a yeah, scale. No, I much
1: prefer. I much prefer. Uh, you know, when, when I when I enjoy you know the company with my wife. You know, um, I, mu- I much prefer you know being on mushrooms for me. You know, than to be on right. LSD. I, I was never like a big LSD.
0: Your right size situation. Guy. Yeah, it's a whole different trip because it's more non physical. You know. And plus, where well, you got a paisley covered lizard in your bed, <laughs> it's a totally different situation.
1: Well, that's crazy. No mushrooms. I, I don't know. For me, like mushrooms, when I take mushrooms, even just microdosing, mushrooms just may, makes me really appreciate my life. You know, makes me appreciate, you know, my wife. My it makes me appreciate my career. It just makes me appreciate everything because. So much in this country, you know, this country—it's so material driven, and, and, and we're raised in such a capitalistic environment. You know, to always kind of look, well, what's he got? What's he got? You yeah. Know, why don't I have this? And it's kind of like a, a glass—a glass half empty, you know, kind of existence, man, which we kind of live, you know, we, which is kind of society forces on us in this country. So I've always been, you know, the type of dude. I try to stay positive. I try to look forward. Right. And um, I try to see the glasses half full. So. When I do mushrooms, man, mushrooms just really give me that appreciation. Yeah.
0: The thing, you know, I you come know, from Washington and Washington State. In Washington State, those Liberty Caps, they just grow wild. The mushroom, you know, uh, harvesting season. you got thousands of people out picking these things. They're growing wild all over the place. No one comes and arrests you. You know, that's just so ubiquitous that, you know, it just there it is. And uh, uh, so it's real common. I mean, uh, it's... You know, as common as capsules.
1: Well, I get, I get all my, I get all my, uh, you know, like like all my mushroom products. I, I get from Washington. You know, so you know, I get I get the capsules. Like the, the people that I know, they, they they get the penis envy. You know, yeah. the, they they grow the penis envy. You know, and, and I think it's like it's like a specific year for a specific strain which they grow. You know, it's like a famous strain. I I don't know what year it's from, but it's like way back in the sixties or seventies. I'm not. I'm not big on the strains and mushrooms and, and, and know all the, the science behind it and the, and the different types and stuff. But I do know, you know, that the people that, that I get these capsules from, you know, they, it's all, it's a penis envy, which are supposed to be like some of the best. And, um, you know, they, it's the extract and they mix it with a whole bunch of other things, you know, so it's like a... a
0: <laughs> High like, fructose it's, it's corn like syrup. <laughs> work.
1: yeah. Yeah, they, they mix, uh, you know, it's supposed to be real organic and, and, and good for you on a lot of levels. But I do know why they call those uh, mushrooms penis envy, because, like, if you ever see them, you know, then you'll know why they call them penis envy.
0: Because that's what they look like, something you'd be envious of. <laughs> yeah,
1: just the shape. You're like, you're looking, you're like, damn. Damn,
0: damn. <laughs> <laughs> Looks yeah, like... and
1: your wife is looking at them. Your, your wife is looking <laughs> at them like...
0: Hmm. I mm. mean, mm. she's looking at you like. Mm. Oh. <laughs> it's like uh, suddenly fighting yourself with uh, Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I watched that. I to, uh,
1: can, look, <laughs> how can any guy? How can any guy compete with Tommy Lee? I mean, there's no. You can't compete with that dude.
0: No. Well, the thing is that, fascinating. Is that research shows if women, when women are asked, what penis size do you like? Uh, and for your husband, it was like six point three if uh if you're going to have an affair, uh what would you prefer? And he said six point five <laughs> but anything over that was like problematic for a lot of women. I said, oh no thank you you know yeah uh, I know one woman who on her wedding night wound up in the hospital because she was a tiny thing, and her husband wasn't.
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Easyotomy. I'm sure that could be very unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, you know, I like that Pam that and Tommy thing they had on Hulu, too. I, I watched that. That was nice.
0: Yeah, I liked it. it
1: was
0: a, a pretty. I thought they did a fantastic Seth job. Seth
1: yeah, Seth Rogen was awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I felt like I I didn't want to feel. I think the way they structured it was very clever because you're so into him as a sympathetic character. Yeah, he's getting Tommy Lee, but you're not thinking about what, what it's doing to, to Pam. And when the, when the, he said, did you think? Did you think? Yeah, I'm an asshole." He said, "But did you think about her? You know, she was innocent in all this. You know, she wasn't the asshole I was or I am." And he hadn't thought about that. Yeah. As so he apologizes to the alike in front of Grandma's Chinese.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, that's a twist because you think about it. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in the '80s, man, and, and it was just you know what what what. You know, life was like, and, and, and how men treated women, and, and the whole kind of rock star ethos mm-hmm. back then was totally different. So, I mean, you know, I, I think things in, in that regard have changed for the better. You know what I'm saying? Because people used to not care about women's feelings or what women thought, and I, I, I think that's important, man. Because you know, like they say, most like like what I'm trying to show with this psychedelic series. Yeah, you, you got all these men. Who were the ones making the moves? But I mean, the women were the—they're the glue. They're the ones holding everything together, yeah, ever, man. Absolutely everything right.
0: Up. Absolutely right.
1: Yeah, so that—that's what I'm saying, man. you you, you got to give women their due. You got to put them in the forefront, and, and you know, you got to—you got to respect and, and honor and, and revere them. You know, that's kind of like these, these icons that I know, like Bonnie Stanley and uh, Carolyn Barger. Garcia. I mean, to me, they—they've kind of been—they've become like these ants. You know, like these, these psychedelic ants, you know, that, that I never had. And, and, and I'm just, like, so happy to have this relationship with them and be able to call them and, and talk to them and let them know what I'm doing and, and stuff like that and just kind of soak up their wisdom and their knowledge. And, um, and they've you know, got it, too. They, they've
0: we've got they've that depth of experience and human interaction under stress and under beauty that you just can't get anywhere else.
1: Yeah, and sometimes they even tell me stuff that, that I don't like to hear. But, you know, after after I think about it, you know, creative wise or whatever, you know, or life, you know, life, life uh, you know, no advice. But after I think about it, I think about what they say. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, they are right.
0: You know, I'm wrong. Let me, let me switch it up. Now, let's, uh, I want to switch the subject up here for a minute and uh, go a little bit into some of your... Uh your, your output, uh, aside from the, uh, the the film stuff and the TV things, uh, you've got some stuff uh, uh, that's come out. What, what? It's always a strange question to ask an author. People ask me the same thing. What's your favorite of the publications you've had? Do you have any personal favorites for one reason or another because of the experience of writing it or how you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely... Prison Stories, my, my first book, which I published in 2005 from prison. That was kind of like what I my, what I opened up, my imprint, guerrilla comic, my blog.
0: We, my oh, hold, on. Ah. hold on a second. We had a little earthquake of okay. of noise there, unfortunately. Okay, that, that was the first book, Prison Stories? Yeah,
1: so prison Stories was, was my first book, and that's kind of how I launched my whole brand from prison. So... Um, that book is really special to me, and, and and still to this day, I think that's probably my best book, because it was my first book, and I just put so much time and effort. Because, you know, when, when you're a first-time author and you never put a book out before, I mean, you just, you know, you, you question everything. You second-guess everything. You know, you doubt everything. So you just keep going over and over and over, you know? Yeah. And so I, I just feel like that book is, like, really, really finely crafted. It's, it's like, you know, like for craftsmanship, for me, it's probably... It's probably, you know, besides like, you know, some of the films I've been on, like White Boy or some of the stuff I'm doing now, you know, film-wise, Prison Stories is probably my finest, finally, most finely crafted uh, content, you know, that I've ever put out, you know, and I will put Prison Stories up against White Boy for craftsmanship, you know, and some of this newer stuff that, that I'm going to be dropping in the next year or so, you know, plus, Prison stories, it, it, it's, it's basically like my first two years in prison. You know, I wrote it as fiction, but it's basically biographical. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's kind of like what I was experiencing in federal prison in a, in a medium to high security institution as, as a 22, 24-year-old, you know, who grew up in the suburbs and who's kind of thrust into this, you know, in the belly of the beast, this netherworld of corruption and violence. And um, it just real, really captures... You know what what I experienced and what it was like for me. So I would say for the book, that's probably like my 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 number one. Um, but then my number one A, it has to be my Supreme Team book. It's another book that um, I mean it's a huge it's a huge book. It's like a hundred thousand words, you know. And as a writer, you know, a hundred thousand words like that's like a huge book. Most books are like you know around sixty thousand right, words. Right. It's that. Yeah, so it's just this huge team of knowledge, man, where I told, like, this whole Supreme Team story, and I had access to all the guys that were in the crew that were there. You know, I had access to Supreme. You know, I had access to a lot of these other guys, you know, that I interviewed. And um I just put a lot of time and effort. I was like, you know, like when you write a book, like I was immersed, like I was obsessed with that book, you know, and I was obsessed with that Supreme Team story for probably like the, the two three years. that it took me to write that book and to do all the edits. And um, you know, I just read I read so many articles, I read so many court records, man, and trying to incorporate all oh, that yeah. into. Yeah, and I tell you, know, you, you know, know, the, the, the thing about court records. I was
0: getting. The thing about court records is this really as an author, this pissed me off is I go through, uh, like I say, I'm on uh, Murder in the Family, which was my, my one so far New York Times bestseller, 100,000 words, I know exactly what you're talking about, and you go through the court records, and you've, you as the author have to find what it is in there that's going to propel the story forward, that the audience or the reader is going to be able to understand in context. It's not easy. And then I'd read someone say, Oh, all he did was throw a bunch of court documents in the book. And I want to go to their house and bitch slap them. You know? Because that's not, it's not just a bunch of court records thrown into the book. You know, it takes some real thought and planning and discernment to decide what to use and how to use it. And a lot of people don't get that. They just think of, Oh, if it's a quote from a court record, he just tossed it in. Yeah. It's
1: important where it fits.
0: Exactly. It exactly.
1: Fit. Yeah, it has to fit to move the story forward. You know, um, I, I always tell people, right? I, I tell people, because people say, you know, I, I, I got a big body of work. You know, I'm very prolific. You know, I, I've gone from, like, you know, writing articles to writing books and now writing, you know, uh, documentaries and movies. And, you know, so, so I've really evolved as a writer and, and I've gotten to, you know, the highest level. As, as a writer, and like I say, there's still a higher level out there that I'm, I'm still, um, you know, trying to get to. But I always tell people that I'm not like, I'm I'm like a shaper, you know. That's why I think like documentaries are like so perfect for me right now, because I'm like a shaper, you know. I'm not like I'm not going to write like the great American novel, you know. I'm right. not going to sit down and write something like straight out of my head. Right. You know, like, I, I admire, like, the fiction writers that can do the stuff like that. They can just sit down and, and pour stuff right out of their head onto the paper. That's not how I write, you know? I'm a, I'm a research guy. You know, I, I, I need, like, all the facts. You know, I need the interviews. You know, without the interviews, I, I, can't, I can't do anything. Right. You know, and then I need the court records. I need the newspaper articles. You know, that's what I do. I'm a shaper. Yeah. You know, I take all that stuff, and I shape it into a story you know, that people can read, you know, into an adventure, you know, that people want to keep reading. And that that's, that's kind of my thing, you know, so that's why for me, you know, since I've been out now, you know, now going on seven years, you know, the documentaries are perfect for me right now, because that's basically what you're doing. You, you just, you know, same, you shape, you same, get technique,
0: you get everything you need. same technique, same process. It's just, you're dealing with visuals instead of just the words. Yeah,
1: that's what I tell people all the time. They're like, well, how did you make this transition, you know, from, like, journalist to, to you know, author, you know, to filmmaker? And I tell them it's, 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 all, it's all the same thing, man. You know, even, even, like, my documentaries, I do the interviews. I transcribe them. I, get them tra- I don't transcribe them, but I get it like a service to transcribe right, right. them. And then I pick out quotes. And I start building, and I build it from the quotes. It's, it's still all written to me, you know. I, and then I give it to the editor, you know. But I got to put like the time stamps and all that stuff in, so the editor knows where to go grab the quotes. But I still write it, right? You know, with, right, with right. the quote, yeah. and I just yeah, I just lay them out, and then I give it to the editor, and he makes it visual, you know. And I work back and forth with the editor, but you know, it's still like it's still like the same thing. Yeah,
0: you're still the same process. Still the same process of gathering together all the information you possibly can. And then, as you say, you're a shaper. you got to shape it and put it in a form, uh, structurally, that the audience can relate to. And sometimes that can be a real challenge. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, in my book, Man Overboard, Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, which is a true story, and it's... Uh, The climax, the big action show is a climax, doesn't come at the end of the book. So, (laughs) you know, I didn't want to have it happen in the middle and then just be all downhill from there. So I had to do it so I was going back and forth in time and find transitions that worked to communicate that to the reader so they didn't get confused. And I guess it worked. Kathy Scott, who's a great true crime writer herself, uh, she's crazy about that book, (laughs) more so than I am, uh, because of that. Uh, The other thing I I always like to do, and maybe uh, you do it or you will do it in the future, I'm sure, is you think, what can I do as an outlaw in this profession? What can I do that there's something that you're not supposed to do or that... The unwritten laws, say of of, of uh, not of ethics, but of structure or whatever, that you don't do, that isn't done, and finding a way to do it that works. Uh, which I'm yeah. happy to say I've done. I've done a couple times. I had I have my agent call up one time, and she said, "You have committed literary heresy, but you got away with it." <laughs> yeah, it's like you so. Go ahead.
1: I kind of go, you know, with the film thing. Like, you know, I, I see like, you know, guys like Quentin Tarantino, and this is even in my writing. You know, a lot of the the, the very best filmmakers, in my opinion, like they they pay they pay homage to different filmmakers. Like they, you know, they basically right. steal little parts right. or scenes and, and replicate them in, in their movies. And so I've always done that with my writing. So what I do, you know, is I'll see like. I'll read a book, and, and, like, I like how they laid it out. I like how they did the chapters. I like how they did the chapter headings. I like how they laid out the words on the page. Right. And, and that's what I've done with all my books. I, I see something that I like, and then I replicate it. You know, of course, I'm not replicating their story, because, you know, in writing, that would be plagiarism, you yeah. know, the, the, the death knoll for a writer. But, you know... I I replicate the style. I replicate the way it looks. I replicate, you know, how even they might have the title and and they might have, like, a quote after the title. Right, right. So, you know, and and I've done that. Like, I've read books where, you know, you see books where it has, like, you know, the the chapter heading, but then it has, like, some quotes underneath. Yes. So I've always, stuff like that. Yeah, I do that, too. (laughs) from other writers.
0: You know, the thing is the people who read in this genre, they get it. They get that, because they you know what you're doing. Right. Hey, I, just say, I have a line in, in uh, uh, Stealing Manhattan where talking about uh, Punch's dad and his best friend, the professor. And uh, Bronco uh, uh, Punch's mother, I have her say, I, I say as a narrator or whatever, in the parlance of 1968, they were the Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. And she says, they were the best of friends. Well, that's a Bob Dylan lyric. Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. It's on the John Wesley Harding yeah. album. you know. But someone familiar with that album and familiar with Dylan will know that, will recognize that. You know, wait a second. That's a Bob bum- Dylan lyric. little you know? uh, things like that are fun to sneak in. When I was writing for Kensington, yeah. uh, I of the family. There's, and this is a tragic, horrible story. This guy murders his aunt and, and her two little kids. There's no room for humor or tongue-in-cheek in there. The only, only hint of it is in one, one line. Said the sperm sample slipped through the prosecution's fingers and landed in the defense's lap. That <laughs> was the only thing I, the entire book. But it's fun to do that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, no, I love, I love,
1: I love those little, those little like. I, I mean, I call them like, you know, they're like little tricks or, or you know, yeah. ball and stuff like that. But um,
0: yeah, films, in movies, they like call Supreme. them Easter eggs.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did that for Supreme Team. Like every chapter of Supreme Team has like a little different rap lyric, you know, from one of the different rappers, you know, that rapped about Supreme Team. So every chapter kind of starts off with like a rap lyric. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it's fun to do that and the audience or the readers appreciate it because they like it they get it you know it's like uh, inside jokes
1: it brings a a cultural it brings the cultural aspect and and it shows that you know because I I think so many writers especially nowadays you know writers of you know books and even films or whatever it's like people are just looking for for the killer story or people are just looking for something that sells you know and and whatever granted I mean people gotta eat I'm not knocking it but you know, like, like the stuff that I do, I'm very passionate about my work, and, and I'm like a big cultural guy. So, you know, everything I do, it's either it's because I'm part of the culture, you know, or it's because I've been with the culture, I've experienced the culture. I mean, you know, if I never did 21 years in prison, I would have never written all those books about the African-American drug lords. Because, you know, I had no experience with those dudes. I didn't know those dudes, but then I was locked up with those dudes. I met them, you know, I ate with them. I broke bread with them. You know, I played basketball with them. I formed friendships with them. So, you know, that's how I was able to experience their culture, you know, and, and what they were about. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm a white kid from the suburbs, so I like to rap music anyhow, you know? I mean, the white kids from the suburbs have always liked the rap music. But right. I got that little extra experience by going to prison where I actually was with these guys, you know, 24-7, you know, in the prison and on the yard. Yeah.
0: Hey, have you read Daniel Genesis book, Sentence, Ten Years and a Thousand Books in Prison?
1: No, no, I, I, I haven't, man, but I mean, I've, I've known about him for a long time. At one point, we were, we were corresponding back and forth, but I think, you know, he, he went back in at some point, I went back in a couple times, but... uh yeah, I always thought, you know, he, he I mean, dude, dude is a, a very, very uh, fascinating writer, man. It's great. A you'll, you'll love
0: the book. It's a fantastic book. I really highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah, I think it gives. I know, yeah,
1: I know, I know, I know he's had his struggles, man. So I, I'm really happy that he has his books out. And like, I'll see him on social media sometimes. So you know, I'm, I'm happy he has a book out. It looks like he's doing really well right now, and, yeah. and I'm happy for him. Yeah,
0: me too. Uh, tell you, he made me a cheesecake once like he would make in prison because he did this whole thing on prison cuisine. And uh, he came hey, in, yeah. uh, he and his wife came and uh, stayed with us and, and he made a cheesecake and we watched the movie Predestination and uh, with the lights down and he gave me his cheesecake and damn, I ate the whole thing. And they the lights Oh, no, man. Those, hey, <laughs> she, that, that prison food is awesome,
1: dude. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, check this out. So oh, I, I actually, um, I, I'm... You know, I, when I got friends over and stuff, like when, when friends come and visit me, right, I always tell them, I'm like, my, my main course, I tell them I'm going to make prison nachos. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, it's crazy because the nachos, we used to do nacho boxes in there. And they'd be like so good. So, like I do it out here, you know, I, I make it just so I made it in prison. because you know, I don't, I don't have to just use a microwave. You know, out here I can actually, you know, I have a pan and I can actually cook it. But I do that all the time, man. I do the blends of the cheese. You know, I, I'll, I'll cook the meat or the chicken. You know, I'll cut up all the vegetables. And then I'll lay the nachos out, like, on a, on a plate, you know, like how we laid in a box. And then I, I just layer all the stuff over. And people always love it, man. They yeah. always love the prison nachos.
0: Yep. Yeah. Some of that stuff is actually really incredible. And it's it shows great creativity. And, uh, you know... <laughs> Well, what, what do you do when you want something that you can't have? You make it yourself. <laughs> it reminds me of the scene at yeah. Goodfellas where they're all in in prison, yeah, and they're they're in their cell with the kitchen and they're making the sauce, uh, yeah, and they're cooking the food themselves, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, Daniel, the thing. Like- yeah, no, that's what that's what it's
1: like, man. That's what it's like, man. I, I was in SGA at and with a bunch of uh, Jersey and New York monsters, man. And every Sunday, dude, they they used to make a big deal. They would have dudes slicing the garlic all day, cooking the sauce, mm-hmm. boiling the pasta, like, with the stinger. And then, you know, they would have, like, 15, 20 dudes. You know, I was actually with uh, Michael Perna. You know, um, rest in peace. You know, he, he actually died during COVID. But, uh, you know, he was, like, the consigliere, consigliere for... Um, I don't know, one of the families, you know, but the the, the New Jersey branch, right? He, they wrote the book about him, Jersey Boys, you know, about yeah, his, yeah. his crew. But, um, dude, he was like literally every Sunday he would feed like 20 guys, you know. He had a couple guys like me, you know, five or six of us that were the mainstays on the unit, and we used to help prepare the food and stuff. You know, uh, I used to cook boiled pasta with uh, one of his guys, Mikey Ryan. <laughs> who was like one of his, um, you know, like earners or associates or whatever. He wasn't made because he was an Irish guy. But he yeah. was like hey, one of Mikey Kern's main guys. Hey Seth, then, we've,
0: uh, we've run out. Of, we've run out of time and we've run out of pasta sauce. Ask him back when it's. Yeah. All right, that's how it goes. Hey, that's We're gonna have you back again. Love having you on the show. It's been a few years since you've been here. I'm glad with all your success. I'm proud of you. Keep it up. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you, man. Definitely. Hey, okay. girl. What's yeah. next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence is live in the Light Up Lounge at LR Radio Live.com. Come on. Superstar, <laughs> star. Where you from? How's it going? I
1: know you. Got a clue what you're doing. You can play brand new to all the other chicks out here. But I know what you are. What you love, baby. Look at you. Getting more than just a real baby